0: Hi, my name is Tora Abrahams. I am the founder and the project lead of the Black Women's Reproductive Health Project. And FemTech to me is having a radical approach, making sure that we're doing as much as possible to destigmatize menstruation and ensuring that men are also involved in that conversation and advocacy.
1: Welcome to FemTech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast brought to you by FemHealth Insights, the leaders in women's health, market research, and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with FemHealth experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future women's health and wellness. Don't forget, our virtual one-day revitalized summit is coming up Wednesday, June 28th. Get your ticket at FemTechFocus or FemHealthInsights.com and use promo code PODCAST for 50% off your ticket. That makes it only $15, y'all. I want to see you there. We have a powerhouse lineup of speakers that are looking to actively engage with the femtech community, including the head of data science from Johnson & Johnson, VP of partnerships at MyEvent, and director of women's health investments from the Gates Foundation. Needless to say, you're not going to want to miss it. Get your ticket today, and I'll see you then. Alrighty, righty, fans, in today's episode, I interview Tora Abrahams, project lead for the Black Women's Reproductive Health Project. Originally working in human rights law, Tora led a judicial review claim against the prison system in the UK for forcing a strip search of her female client while she was menstruating. Tora then went on to identify more repeated misogyny within the public services, recognizing that services were designed by men for men and therefore failing women. After leaving the law, Tora moved to the charity side of things, a nonprofit sector, and specialized in gender-specific services and found her passion, advocating for stronger conversations and attention to female reproductive rights. The Black Women's Reproductive Health Project is the first of its kind in the UK. It supports African and Caribbean women with access to information, advocacy, and peer support, and has created the first ever UK report that details the menstrual reproductive needs and experiences of the Black and Black mixed women. In this interview, we discuss stigmas around women's health for Black communities, paid period leave... And how to get men involved in the conversation. This is a great opportunity to learn more about period poverty, the stigma of menstruation in the Black community, and the power of community in destigmatizing menstruation in Black communities. Learn more about the Black Women's Health Reproductive Health Project at tapproject.co.uk. You can actually access that link in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Tora, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Brittany. Great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: It's great to have you. You said you were listening to the last few episodes, getting pumped. Was there any episode that really stood out to you?
0: A recent one was, and I'm going to say, I'm going to blame my Post-COVID brain malaise, on forgetting her name, but the author who wrote the book. She was an engineer, and she wrote a book about some of the fascinating parts of the female reproductive system, and some things that she mentioned blew my mind. Like, so that was definitely a favorite for me recently.
1: Yeah, um, I think you're referring to Lisa Falco's Go Figure. That's the name. Yeah, 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 because- yeah, 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 yeah. And I really love, there's a lot of new books coming out in Femtech and Women's Health. And I love that the authors are sending them to me. And I'm just highlighting the crap out of them because (laughs) there is still so much I don't even know. And uh, so I always love to give that permission to my listeners. It's okay to not know most things about women's health. I'm the host of this show and I don't even know, right? Like, we're all (laughs) continuing
0: to learn. I I work in the field, and something she said there, I just thought, what? There is so much more to do, so much more to learn. So, yeah great great platform for that conversation
1: oh, oh boy well we love to kick off our episodes with learning more about our guests a little bit more on the personal side so can you tell us a little bit about where you're from you know what did you, what was your early career or early education and how did you end up working in the space you are now
0: So um, I'm from Manchester in the UK, but I actually live and work between London and areas of East Africa. Um, I grew up up here. And for me personally, even from a really young age, I've always been heavily passionate about supporting vulnerable people, like marginalized communities and I really attribute a lot of that to my mixed race background. Like my father is a first generation immigrant from apartheid South Africa. And if you look at his background, so his dad played cricket for the national team but was on the non-white team, on the coloured team. And so, yeah, had a very different story to, to getting into the sport. And he was as much of an activist as I am. And so he moved the family to the UK. And like I said, I think a big part of why I do... This work is because that just driving me around disliking inequality, passionate about looking to eradicate injustice is something that I've just been born with, I guess. Mm. And my mum tells me stories about when I was younger, about um, just having this kind of advocacy need in me, even over small things like when we were having some building works done. We had one of the builders smoking in the house, and I was like ten or eleven. But I went up to him and I was like, "Listen, my sister's got asthma. You can't be doing that
1: in the oh house." My <laughs> so, her parents just, are like, "Oh, she's gonna do something in the world."
0: You know? <laughs> like, oh. So, just and like some people would call me argumentative, but I saw it completely differently. And I just, yeah. like I said, the driver in me is more the passion of if I see something that doesn't that isn't right, I want to do something about it. I don't accept status quo situations. I don't want to accept where there can be room for improvement just kind of sitting on sitting on your laurels and doing nothing about it and I and I do put a lot of that down to yeah my my racial heritage so very proud of that um and that being said it led me into like the most obvious world of advocacy which was the law so I initially qualified in representing men and women in an area called prison law in the UK so ultimately that men um representing men and women in prison law settings, post-conviction and helping them with access to services and access to justice um, that had to do with their sentence progression and um, sort of their release into the community rehabilitation issues, a lot of mental health support and so on. But a big turning point for me was a case, uh, a claim against prison service. Here we call them judicial reviews where an individual can take a body of the state to court and say, what you did was unlawful. I need you to remedy it. And in this case, it was for a female client who unfortunately had a really, really low IQ, had learning difficulties and uh, found herself making good progress. But then she was stumped when she got to an open prison Had made it into the community for like a day release, doing some volunteer work. And on her return, she was um, she was stopped by a male prison officer and he demanded a strip search of her, but she had a period. So she refused and she was a very naturally anxious person, um, Yeah, and because of her cognitive abilities, she refused. And that refusal, because of her period, put her back into a closed prison, which really had a detriment to her overall progression and then, like I said, impacts on her mental health as well. For me, she wasn't the only case, but the case that we took, fortunately, was successful. And it was one of a number of, of situations and circumstances that were presented to me by my female clients that really evidenced that the female prison estate had issues that were driven into it because it had been designed by men effectively reflecting the male prison estate when we know that female needs are so different female offending behaviors are so different the reason women commit crime and those things and so for a long time towards the end of my prison law career i was purely focusing on issues that affected women um Yeah, and that that put me in really good stead to then move into the voluntary sector, which I think you guys probably call the nonprofit sector, working specifically for women's organizations designed to help women based issues within settings that are are affecting for women. So, um, luckily enough, I found a charity that supported women who have been both impacted by criminal justice, either as offenders or as victims. And from there, I stayed within the nonprofit sector and do a number of things in different capacities now, whether it be projects and service delivery. And then as a consultant, I do a lot of business development for organizations, particularly grassroots ones, solely focusing on the two main things that are important to me, Uh, gender equality, women's based issues, but also racial equality and and looking at the injustices that exist within a range of sectors, but with those two particular themes. yeah. And I love it. I'm really proud of what I do. So that's just a bit about
1: me. I am so happy to have met you and so happy to give (laughs) you a space to tell your story because you're doing the hard work and, and obviously representing women who may not be able to represent themselves. Right. And so, um, I know we're going to jump into all your volunteer work as you call it, your nonprofit work. Uh, but before we do, I just have to ask you, like, if you had a magic wand to change, like, two to three things in the prison system for women what would those those top requests be
0: that is such a good question um a big thing we're facing at the moment in the women's prison estate is the issues that affect children when mothers go into care um, so i would look at magically wanding <laughs> for mm-hmm. want of be a better phrase those the, the the system needs to be changed so that children impacted by Uh, parents who go into uh, criminal justice settings are better supported and there's a better understanding and and healthier conversations about what that looks like. I really think that there's still significant stigmas around if there's any kind of offending behaviour within a family, how people are therefore treated. Um, And the second thing would be, oh it's gone out of my head, it's completely, left. like I said, the post-COVID malaise no is really impacting no me. But it probably will come to me at some point in a
1: completely in question. We'll fill, we'll fill in that blank by let me ask you a very ignorant question. But I always believe if I have the question, half of my listeners probably do too. Yeah. When you say like, um, because, and maybe this was just that individual woman, but like in general, strip searches, like, does a strip search include like it looking in the vaginal cavity for drugs? Like does a strip search include. Cause I, I feel like I always see TV shows with men and they have to yeah, like yeah, yeah, spread yeah. their cracks and cough. And I'm like, do women do that? Like, tell me about
0: everyone. Everyone does that. So um, don't get me wrong. What should have happened was a female officer has supported that, but she still, I'm, I'm adamant my client would have still said yes. In fact, I remember we talked, this is the case was 10 years ago. It's what pushed me into the gender equality work that I do, but I'm, I'm certain that what happened was it was two male officers who were doing the general searches mm-hmm. on her return to prison. What should then happen, um, and it should be routine, but it's it never is because the prison service is also underfunded, and so prison officers are like, if I can be bothered, I'll do all the 10 women who've returned, but in fact, I'll just do these two. And my client was a very difficult client because of all the issues she had, and so, again, living within that stereotype, she... You know, she she was frustrating for the officers. So all of the prisoners, I, I assume, should have been sat on a, a what we call a boss chair, body of a searching a scanning machine and also have done possibly what you just said. Um, but that didn't happen. It was just, yeah. yeah, as she walked in, you will be doing this. And she was like, no, I've got my period. I'm not doing it. No one's going near me. Like not a chance at all. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. So a horrible situation. Yeah. And I can't remember the second thing that I was going to magic for the prison estate for women, but I'm sure it'll come to me. I'm sorry, Brittany.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No worries. No worries. I think if not uh, 98% of our listeners have had COVID and we all know what about the brain farts (laughs) that COVID absolutely comes with. So let's jump into your current day work. Tell us about what is the Black Women's Reproductive Health Project and what does being project lead entail?
0: so the black women's reproductive health project was started under one of the organizations I volunteered for initially um when I went into the women's voluntary sector and their main um, like the mission and aims behind their work are to do with um, addressing period poverty and in the UK and across the, um, the activism space within Europe and the UK what that looks like is um, three things three main things the failure to be able to afford or access period products, the lack of education and and full understanding of what periods are, and then the third thing being the stigmas and the shame associated with with periods. And we're rewinding the clock for the last three years, talking about COVID again. It all sparked up us creating this sort of secondary project under the the charity's main service provision because of the reignition in the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, we were all... I mean, there's so few words that can really adequately justify how we all felt when we saw the footage of George Floyd's murder and then what happened as a consequence and the commitment. Like, I want to say the substantial and meaningful and tangible commitment made by organizations to actually do something about systemic racism, particularly in the spaces that they practice. So, I was fortunate enough to be the only woman of African heritage on the board of this charity. And so I was like, I'm gonna lead this because I'm I'm passionate about it. Um, And the idea was, well, actually, if I take a step back, we knew that there was poor maternal health outcomes for black women when it came to pregnancies and labor. A lot of that data was coming out of the States only. There hadn't been that much in the UK just at this point. and our expertise was in periods we educated about periods we talked about menstrual health and reproductive conditions like endometriosis and so on so if we recognize that black women are really impacted because of structural racism and then the individual biases that exist within healthcare professionals there has to also be something at play with periods because you don't get pregnancy without periods right so so that's what we we pushed for um and the aims of the project initially were to create this research because there hadn't been any. There had been no um, pieces of data of any qualitative or quantitative looking at the experiences of Black women and Black British mixed women in healthcare settings where they were discussing periods and on what kind of help they needed. Um, so that was the first step. And throughout the pandemic and up until 2022. We gathered data from a small portion of women, just um, under 200, who gave us some feedback about what their experience of trying to have their menstrual health um, support that they needed around reproductive health conditions looked at. And therefore, what this meant for the tangible outcomes we wanted to create in addressing the systemic racism holistically. So... The second and third parts of the project were to provide that direct support to beneficiaries, predominantly in the form of a resource of so some kind of app or information guide that was accessible. So not every woman has a smartphone. A lot of women don't have English as a first language here as well. So creating something around that. And that's the stage that we're on now. But also something that came through the focus groups was we need the emotional support to feel empowered to advocate for ourselves to know what's normal what's not normal and again that really came through from the report and the and the focus groups too so we we now have peer support groups online and in the community that provide that support and the last thing we do is or what we will be doing is liaising with healthcare professionals and stakeholders in the giant the gynecological gyne- gynecological space sorry um and Advising them of what we found, basically advising them that so many of our beneficiary group—I mean, one of the statistics that came out of the report was that 92% of the women we spoke to had faced some kind of barrier in trying to have their mental health conditions looked at, and 75% of those said that there was no positive outcome for them on going to their GP, kind of at the, the first line of healthcare inquiry as to as to what that meant for their periods. So, um. This is the information that healthcare providers and stakeholders need to be aware of. We know that in the UK, the four times more Black women suffer fatal consequences around maternal health and pregnancy and labour. So, do something about the stages before that point. Mm-hmm. This is what you're being told when women are coming to see you around the conditions that they they have related to their period. So, um, yeah, that's the the project in in full and being the project lead is is basically managing things. So with those three core parts of what we want to achieve, it is making sure that we have representation across the board. So I've had some amazing interviews with some ambassadors that are joining the team recently because proudly mixed African woman, but simultaneously I don't um, represent all of the women that this project looks to support. So, and I completely recognize that. Um, So we have that necessary diversity within, within the team now. I as part of my job my main job as a consultant I do business development so that's what I've supported with the development of the project as well and just wanting to do more in terms of wider advocacy. I think a big part that I was proud of with the work we did for Freedom for Girls specifically related to peer poverty was the development of um schemes that were then implemented at a a national government level including free period products in schools and you know the type of advocacy that we're putting with the project we want to see that systemic impact at such a much bigger national level as well so that the tangible chain change isn't just kind of grassroots small project we want to make women feel better it is like let's do something about this so that is
1: that that is the, that is the aim. And we're on the way there as well. I have so many questions just based base on the, that answer. Uh, the <laughs> first one is, um, you said that you, you know, you consult people and I always find that very interesting. Who, who for business development purposes is hiring a consultant to learn about period poverty in the UK? Like what kind of person is that? Or what kind of, you know, why would they care? Why would they put money into this? How is that helping their business?
0: Really good question. Um, when I was specifically with um, Freedom for Girls in the operational space, there was a project designed by one of our sister charities who are the biggest period poverty charity in the country. They're called Bloody Good Period. And they run the same ethos as we do. And they created a scheme called Bloody Good Employers. And there's actually been a lot of similar schemes within the UK, that, I, that predominantly the ones that I'm aware of, that are related to menstrual and reproductive health conditions and guides for employers to look at what is going on with these conditions and how they affect women on a day-to-day basis. So there's an endometriosis society guide for employers. There's a menopause guide for employers. We've also just had the um, menstrual leave um, granted in Spain. So in terms of people who commission consultants um, within the period poverty of menstrual equity Space, it is to look at a lot of employees now are recognizing the need to address women's-based issues to make the quality of life and therefore the quality of the work of the women that they employ a lot stronger. So I'd argue that a lot of it comes from an agenda that is rooted in business needs, mm-hmm. um, but simultaneously so much of this is driven by grassroots causes. Whether that as a campaign has come from a CEO that works in a financial district because she has fertility issues and she wants to have conversations around this is the support that I need because this is what I'm going through at the moment. Or it comes from organizations like Freedom for Girls and Bloody Good Period where they represent the majority of people in the UK who need this kind of support. So um, if you scream loud enough, you'll get a response. But also, like I said, business does seem to Male-driven business does seem to recognize that female staff need to be looked after. And I think that's the era that we are
1: that now absolute. living in. I agree with you. I just gave yeah. a talk actually at Med MedFemTech Congress in Paris. And my talk was on the, the four main factors driving women's health innovation. Like we've been here, health has been here. We've been sick. Why now are we worried about it? And one of the four factors we found is the is the rise of women in the workforce, right? Because if your workforce is sick or out or not yeah. focused or, you know, whatever, it's not good for your bottom line. And I hate that that is the lever that is moving some people's needles. Uh, but you know what? The rest of our needles have been moving for a long time and Very we'll long. use whatever lever we can to keep moving making it go. In the report, you talk about the stigmas associated with periods and women gynecological health, specifically for the Black woman. Why, why is that? And why is it so relevant in the Black community as opposed to maybe women and other racial backgrounds in terms of stigma?
0: Um, I think, I mean, the concept of stigma, I was really thinking about this question um, earlier. And I think for me, the concept of stigma is really interesting because I feel like stigmas are either imposed on a community or they're created by a community. And I think stigma plays a serious purpose in wanting to control a narrative to create a particular response to a a circumstance or an experience. And I do believe that stigmas within periods exist amongst all cultures, all ethnicities, and we were just alluding to it because a patriarchy, right? Because it is a female-based experience that men don't want to know about. It's not pretty. It's very, very, it's, it's a very weird thing. One of my male friends who's a comedian tells this joke about how women don't talk about their periods. And it's bizarre that they do, because if men were bleeding from their lower part, arts for five days every month everyone would be hearing about it right so i think there's this there's this thing where i want to be careful to say that stigmas and periods go hand in hand and it's horrendous that they do but they do because they're a female-based experience and they're inconvenient to men within that though our report obviously only took um data and feedback from black women. And we didn't dive into the specifics as to why they believe stigma exists. But what we did do was look at pain within the black community around periods. And a big thing for us was the serious levels of pelvic pain that black women experience and difficult periods. But their are in- Capacity to talk about that because of the stigmas associated with periods and the more I thought about this again we didn't dive into it enough but we've had conversations with beneficiaries at a focus group level which was around how we wish to be perceived in society as either going along with the status quo and living the way that we should or in making a fuss about things that we don't believe should be made a fuss over and unfortunately I think it is two-pronged approach it is the way that women generally are made to feel about periods but then also how women of color are made to feel about fitting in with the society and not standing out for the wrong reasons right so I think that generationally so many of my colleagues and friends and I would argue a number of the beneficiaries that contributed to the report um you know we were taught fit in do your best because you need to, otherwise you will stand out. And I think, therefore, having conversations, open conversations with employees to advocate for yourself around how bad your periods are, how bad your pain is, even knowing how to advocate for that in front of a doctor mm-hmm. is also partly to do with the, the impacts that it has on on us as people of colour and what that means to having that kind of self advocacy. I just don't think it's a normal thing within communities. And and I want to say as well that a number of people also highlighted that the stigmas are different with African and Caribbean women because of the cultural differences as well. So there's still a lot of things to dive into, but I would having thought about it, I think I think that's a really big thing. I think it's to do with patriarchy but also again, issues around colonialism and colourism and futurism within racism as well. So yeah.
1: In your research did you find that the stigma to talk about it um was very much a public one or with medical professionals or also within the family because we know that some cultures like uh Indian culture it's like the male father figure does not want to know when the female daughter gets her period right like that's a girl thing so even within the family unit it's stigmatized did you find that in your research too?
0: Yeah, we did. We found that um that it was external on a societal level and that impacted how it was then dealt with internally within the black community uh, in a fami- a familiar but also a cultural setting as well so it was we don't talk about it because no one does and that led to so many problems like I alluded to in terms of the reporting of pain because you don't then know what is a normal amount of pain and what's not a normal amount of pain and in very traditional families there was feedback um that similar to what you just mentioned, if you had your period, you go to your room and you don't cook because the men in your family don't want to eat something that you cooked. So yeah. that came through from one of the focus groups as well. Um, yeah, really sad. Yeah. Really, really sad.
1: Yeah. I recently read an article that was like, yes, there's sometimes where there's some cultures and traditions that are that where it's almost like isolating to the woman. Right. Sounds very isolating. And uh, the article actually expanded my mind a little bit in terms of like, and, and I'm not saying this is this or not, but like they they said, what if there was actually cultures that did remove women from the community and we immediately judged them for that? But what if we actually investigated it and saw that it was because they saw that as a very like Uh, wise and beautiful time for that female, like going through that menstrual cycle. And it's almost like a rest or like an honoring of it. Um, And so I wonder if there's a way to, because I don't think the answer to this is like, we need to tell these families that's wrong and women need to keep cooking dinner, like whether they're bleeding or not, right? But how can we actually like... um, potentially suggest or transform our understanding in terms of like, that's okay, you can keep doing that. But can we change the energy around it, right? Like, where it's not that she's not cooking dinner, because you don't want some kind of contamination. But instead, like, she shouldn't be cooking dinner, because she's getting downloads from, you know, Mother Moon, like, <laughs> she has some internal wisdom happening. I don't know, like, that was, a, I love your just your personal opinion on that. Yeah, I read that no. article, and I just kind of made me think.
0: I really appreciate that like commentary because I. it's so unfortunate that I think um, there's so many traditions that we don't have anymore, like globally, around the beauty of the female experience. When they exist, they typically only exist during pregnancy, but there is so much more to our experience as being women, predominantly because of our cycles, that we just don't have anymore. And a big part, and it's a shame because we're in this world now and you and I've just spoken about it in terms of women deserving a place in the workforce but simultaneously we do have a different life experience Mm -hmm. where do we find the balance of celebrating that and also being okay with that but but acknowledging a woman's um, power and capacity and uh, ability without it being like the it's almost like spectrums isn't it I feel like as a as a as a species, we are opposite ends of the spectrum. Do it all or don't do it at all. So <laughs> for me, for me, I completely agree with you. I think, no, of course, we're not going to try and eradicate cultural sensitivities around this stuff. But what we should be absolutely doing is acknowledging and advocating for the female experience and that being a beautiful thing that doesn't disclude a woman's abilities within the world that also exists and and that's definitely something that we're passionate about at the project because we also like to explore like somatic therapies around women's menstrual health and we're very broad-minded about the beauty of the traditions that you mentioned um that that we should really be upholding but we don't because of men so yeah we'll just have to keep banging our drum like you said until it makes sense It makes more sense.
1: What's your personal opinion on paid period leave? Um, I've been hearing a lot for and against, and these are like both on both sides of for and against are both feminists, right? And so tell me, what's your personal opinion on paid period leave?
0: Oh my gosh, it's such a hard question. Uh, I am someone. Personal opinion, I'm very radical in my feminism and my feminist approach intersectionally, on how we look at social gaining socioeconomic equality for women. And I do believe that there are parts of the way that the West works in terms of the commitments to heavy amounts of destructive capitalism that are not benefiting so many people as well as the environment. So I'm one, I'm one of those people that wants a complete, system change in how we look at things in what the what women's needs are what men's needs are and we find a happier medium that doesn't benefit just the top one percent of people in the world that benefits the majority so for me I feel like menstrual leave is a hurrah for feminists in a liberal approach of the systems that are I don't think that is the ultimate answer to supporting the reduction of patriarchy governing women's bodies and how women should be working and and also having autonomy over what working looks like for us i i uh, i i'm someone who believes in for example paternity leave globally so and it's the same argument i don't i genuinely i understand like you said i understand both sides i think it is a really good thing but it's almost like a band-aid on a massive yeah. wound that's how i i view it um but again, well done for getting it because I do think it's important. I think women deserve more, so there's that yeah. side of it as well.
1: well. I I thank you for that, and because I'm actually similarly, I'm not sure where I fit fit sit. You know, like is that um where I feel about that? Yeah. Uh, and it's the answer is a whole systemic change. <laughs> the whole thing needs to be thrown out and <laughs> like redrawn children. is what is actually <laughs> like the <children>. answer. Um, <laughs> Agreed. In our last few moments here, I do want to tap into some of the amazing work you've done in Africa. So can you tell us about some of the work you've done in, in Uganda specifically? And what has been some of the responses from the local community to your program?
0: Yeah, um, so... The Freedom for Girls charity also has sex in Kenya and Uganda, and I set up the one in Uganda five years ago. Um, and it fits again with the with the approach to tackling period poverty through service provision of products and um, education. But the beautiful thing about the Uganda work is that we work with men and boys, not just women and girls. So the education we deliver there is heavily around the holistic cycle. So from menarche and then all the four phases throughout the month towards menopause and men and boys getting to ask the questions around what is it like? How do you feel? Um What kind of things do you experience? And girls coming to us months after the initial education program um and saying, oh my gosh, it was so good because last year, when I stained my skirt because I didn't have a period pad, the boys laughed at me this year. They offered me their jumper to tie around my waist Aww. and took me to their teacher to speak. <laughs> yeah. Just as so the speaker could set, give me a pad and I didn't have confidence to ask for a pad the first time and all this stuff. So don't, I mean, there's like we said before, there's, there's pros and cons to that as an experience Like the girls should have pads. And um, another part of what we do is, is, we sew washable reusable pads by seamstresses in a workshop in in western uganda but the whole project i could not be more proud of because of how the community have got behind it the incredible project coordinators and ambassadors we have there as particularly the men the men have took us in their stride and they stood in front of a group of really young boys and some of our educators are you know not that much out of high school and university themselves and they're like listen you're going to talk about vaginas and you're going to hear what happens at the end of the month because this is important for women um and we've grown so much we're getting to a point now where we're looking for funding to develop a women's center so that there's more healthcare screenings we can do within the women's center we can offer counseling again, just the seamstresses can have a base to create the pads that are both sold and marketed and then the profits of which are put back into creating ones to be donated. Like it is such an important social enterprise. So yeah, my my passion around menstrual equality throughout the world is, just, I, I hope it keeps growing because I want to take it to my dad's home country of South Africa because there's been stats that have come out of there recently and it's also shocking. So yeah, that's the Uganda stuff.
1: Do you think that the, what is motivating the men in Uganda the most to be involved and inspired and excited, almost, it sounds like, for this?
0: Oh, again, really good question. It's so funny because um, when I say funny, I mean like there's there's no real logic behind it because we know that in global South countries, issues around inequality, particularly gender inequality, that lead to severe poverty and abuse and neglect, like they're massive, like they, they're they different and they happen for different sometimes different reasons but the men in the community like head teachers um pastors of churches community leaders people who work for local government they absolutely love what we do and they come and listen to the talks that we have with the women's groups and they're like this is fantastic my daughter my wife my sister let me look at the pad i've got a video of a man practicing putting a pad on a knickers that like, in front of a group of boys and the boys are all giggling it's like this is important I- I So I just honestly sense that there are so many strong community leaders in so many parts of the world who really care about the the well-being and the ability for their own community on their doorstep to thrive. And I see it every single day when I'm in Uganda teaching, like it's incredible. So I don't honestly, Brittany, I don't know the logic. I don't know the reason. But I think it comes from personal passion and personal experience. So, yeah, I'm so fortunate to be part of that.
1: And you may not know the answer to this, but do you think that there's any lessons from the men there and their like in their engagement? Because I'm always looking for how do we get more men involved, how do we have more li- male listeners, how do we, you know? And and I've asked the men, why are you not here? Where are you, you know? And they a lot of times they say like, oh, I thought that was just for the women. I wanted to be respectful. Like they think respect is retreating. You know, like that uh, they're giving us our space. So again, you don't know may not know the answer to this, but is there any lessons or things we can take from the men in Uganda and how engaged they are and kind of copy and paste that on UK or the US men in terms of like how do we get a regular man here to say, like, hey, I want to talk about periods at school or, you know, like give a community lecture on it, or you know, I don't know. Any lessons there? Um
0: I like you said, I don't fully I know except that I can say on a cultural level, one of the most positive things about African communities is the openness when it comes to positivity, at least when it comes to proactivity and positivity, where there is tangible benefits and you see the health and the happiness of people around you. That is where our communities thrive, like the black community here does the same thing when you see positive, like I said, just the positiveness that creates health and happiness so everyone wants to be a part of it like we are a really community focused culture and i guess that this exactly the same in east africa the openness is they say the word free i'm such a free person i'm free i'm i think this and and i think that's part of it they it, it's what creates internal happiness is also from being able to see collective um mm collective happiness so I think that's a part of it but honestly again I couldn't give you a, a specific logical answer because it's just that's just a guess
1: yeah but yeah honestly that comment is supports one of the things that we're trying to push which is um, if you do have a panel on women's health innovation or an event or whatever please make the title positive and opportunistic and exciting. Um I recently was at a conference and there was a panel called My Broken Vagina and I was like I don't want to go to that, right? Like I need I should be there and I don't even want to go, right? Um <laughs> I'm I, shocked at that. Title. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like I want to go to My Unbeatable Vagina, right? Yes, On My Unbreakable yes. Vagina or like See what's
0: growing totally out of I don't know, I <laughs> totally put it. I think empowering communities as well as at a, a smaller level, um, I think that's what drives it as well. I think, like I mentioned, the passion that I have around grassroots is massive because I really do believe that's what drives systemic change bottom up. And then when you make enough noise, but the positive voices around that is just as important, the messaging is as important. So. Yeah, Yeah, I agree with what you just said.
1: Love it. Uh, Our last two questions, we'll rapid fire them. Uh, We have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs that listen. So what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating?
0: I thought about this and I thought long and hard. And the way I'm going to answer it is twisting it a little bit because I actually think there is so much to do. But I think that the best way to be proactive and see something meaningful in this space is find your niche that you are passionate about and based on your experience, because you're not going to be able to do something that covers everything for women's health. I genuinely believe that do something that you have experience on that you know that you want to change. And then you can see the difference from that. Doing something too broad doesn't work. But if you focus small, like you're going to impact that group in a very particular specific substantial way. So
1: that would be my answer. I love it. And what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful?
0: Um, I think uh, I think to do I think we need to have more of an accessibility conversation around how we're approaching this work. And what I mean by that is ensuring that stuff that's created is accessible and inclusive and it's not just being rolled out on platforms and within programs that a certain particular group of women have access to. I think that we are responsible to represent women globally and that means being able to create stuff and go into spaces what in the voluntary sector we call them in the UK is like hidden communities that, that, that aren't visible to us make sure that you are you know that you're representing them as well because then you can justify like what you're trying to do to be holistically successful not just I know it kind of conflicts with my other answer but I think as an industry there is capacity there so um, that's what I would argue for the success is to be broadly accessible.
1: Mm, Tora, thank you so much for all the amazing work you do. Thank you for being on the show today and uh, standing up for women worldwide.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I tell you, I'll email you once I remember
1: that second magic
0: <laughs> magic <laughs> wish with a female prisoner state, But we'll blame COVID for now.
1: We'll Blame COVID <laughs> for now, and uh, and I mean, I think we tapped on it mid episode. The whole system needs to be changed, right? Completely. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thanks thank you, you. Tora. Thank you for listening to my interview with Tora Abrahams, project lead for Black Women's Reproductive Health Project. Learn more about their project at tapproject.co.uk backslash Black Women Reproductive Health. The URL is in the show notes. Okay, fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at FemHealthInsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 FemTech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and FemHealth Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.